Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. I'm Azul Tarones, your host. So grateful to have Marianne Cantwell here. She's the author of Be a Free-Range Human, Escape the 9 to 5, Create a Life You Love, and Still Pay the Bills. Marianne, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show today. No, oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, what struck me about your book was it really struck a chord when I left my 9 to 5. And I really thought, yep, it, everything about this resonated with me because I was a lifelong teacher, a principal, a university lecturer. So leaving that very solid 9 to 5 while still raising kids and thinking, how am I going to do this? I'm, you know, I just turned 50. Like, this is not the easiest nest to leap from. But I felt like the topic kind of grabbed a hold of my heart. So let's talk about the early days when you first started thinking about that maybe there's a book inside of me that I should write. And why did you decide it was a good idea to write the book? Well, I think my journey was maybe a little bit interesting in that I never wanted to write a book. Oh, I did briefly. Like I grew up writing when I was, you know, I was a kid. I wrote through university. But when I actually started my business, I had a brief moment of, oh my gosh, I want to write a book, as we all do at the very start. But over the first few years, what I did was I had a blog. I had a blog called Free Range Humans, which is kind of is very different now. But at the time it was very active. And I emailed my email list every week, several thousand words. So I knew what writing was. Like I was mm-hmm. writing all the time. However, I didn't really have an urge to turn that into a book. I'd been through the publishing process. I'd had maybe less than inspiring interactions with major publishers (laughs) um, that were like, who wanted to take a book on from me, but they wanted to make it something that wasn't me, that wasn't right. And so after that, I was like, you know what? I don't want to write a book. I'm never going to, this is not my thing. It's a waste of my time. I'm going to focus on who I can reach organically, you know, on the internet. And that's where I focused. And then I was approached by a few other publishers. And one of them was very convincing, a smaller house, much more personal. And they said, you know, one of the reasons to write a book is this is something that's going to last even when you've moved on from this topic. And I thought about it and I thought at the time, there was no book like mine. It was really the first talking about this in the way that it does, especially in the UK where it was originally published. But also, I think internationally, people weren't in 2012, people weren't talking about this the way they are now. And so they, I was like, number one, someone needs to write this. And I think it might be me because I have been writing about it for a while. <laughs> and number two, yeah, I may move on one day. And I would love the enthusiasm of this movement and all the ideas and the stories to live on. And so it came from this very, I guess, a, a move a grounded place of like, this thing needs to exist. And I think I'm the one that needs to write this thing. Yeah, that's incredible. It's like a book attaches to you, even if you don't yeah. want it to. It just it's keeps like, yeah, showing didn't, didn't up. Mean to. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I, I would say that maybe I'm not an accidental author, but I was a reluctant author. I wanted to, but I didn't want to to take the leap. So when when you put yourself out there and you start, we talked about this a little bit off the air that when you start standing for something, your book starts to become something. And and as you talk about this in your second edition of this book, that you know, things have shifted. In 2013, when the book came out, I think one of the things I remember, you said, you know, there was no such thing as the word fake news. There's no such thing. We all freshly (laughs) remember the crisis and losing homes and like people with great wealth not having it. And I think it's sort of drifted away for some people. But 
this idea has shifted. And so what about this idea of writing it for a time and then feeling this nudge to kind of recreate it? We talked about this idea of having a book that has a second edition because maybe it doesn't resonate the way it used to, or maybe even the principles in it are not as true for you as they were when you started out. How did that process begin when you started to think about this book differently? Oh, that was interesting. So I had a a journey that I didn't expect. So when I wrote the original version of Be a Free Range Human, it came out in January 2013. So, you know, as there's, as you all know, there's a sort of a nine to 10 month lag between writing the book and publishing. So this was a really a 2011 book in many ways. And so, you know, when it came out, it did better than we expected. It got shared everywhere. It got a ton of press. And I kind of suddenly was at this sort of center of this movement that was used to be very cozy and intimate and now was a lot bigger. And there were all these voices and this sense of, I need to be something else. And as the time progressed, I watched this movement grow and grow as other people started writing books, other things started going on. And suddenly I was like, you know, when we, when I first released this book, this was all about creating a life where you get to create something in line with your personality, in line with who you are, as well as the life you want. And I saw that vibe and that creativity and that joy that we had be replaced by all these, you know, make this much money by following my one formula approaches. And I saw my clients, my readers who are going through my book, discover this world because they discovered my book and suddenly be funneled off in these directions that were essentially leaving them feeling not good enough, leaving them hitting a wall because they didn't fit the formulas. They didn't fit the mold. And so I was like, I have this book that I feel guilty about now, not because it's wrong, but because it's leading, it's not strong enough about the importance of the mindset. And therefore it's, it's leaving people exposed to, to, to maybe things that I don't particularly agree with when they start discovering other things out there. And so I, actually stopped promoting my book and stopped mentioning it and told people don't refer to me as the author of Be a Free Range Human over the last few years because I was just like, I just wanted to separate from that online movement. I did Mm. a TEDx talk, The Hidden Power of Not Always Fitting In, a very different conversation that was more meaningful to me. Mm. And the reason I mention all this is I think, you know, we do change. And what happens when you put something in writing and that, that doesn't change? Like, People are reading an old version of you. And I'd get emails every week from new readers. And I'd be like, that's not, I don't agree with that anymore. I don't agree with that line. And so my publisher approached me and said, you know, you have one of our most consistently selling books. Can we do a new edition? And I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea you could do a second edition. (laughs) And I was like, can I rewrite like most of it and add all these new chapters? Like you, you can do anything you want. And so that was where it came from. It came from this place of going, you know, I want to be proud of the book I had out there. And I was proud of it for the first few years. I stopped being proud of it. And I think it's really important. It's such a great thing for anyone who's writing or thinking of writing a book to know. There's huge value in knowing that when you're writing your first edition, that get everything right, as right as you can, as the person you are now, but you can re-release. It's actually okay to do so and to be very, as you saw in, in my book, I was very open about all those reasons. So yeah, I was right. really excited about the second edition, more so than the first, strangely enough. Yeah. You know, it's great. Is it, it evolves just as the, the economy and the, the opportunities have evolved. Things that weren't available. I remember thinking in 2008 or 2007, when the iPhone came out, I'm thinking the world's going to change if we start using apps. And it really has. And it's so different than the, the book that you wrote, that we wrote then. And, and now a decade is huge. It used to be Maybe it was slightly different, but I feel like things 
can advance so quickly. So I really appreciate one. Absolutely agree. Yeah. yeah. And just the idea of being able to say, this is what I believe now and changing the edition and having such a supportive uh, community. Obviously the, the book is still doing well, but to have a community of publishers who uh, also support you. Some of the things have stayed very true. I feel like the concept of, of this idea of the safe job myth. And I want to dive a little bit into the content of your book so that we can talk about when you're wrestling with items that are pushing against the status quo, where do you get your inspiration? So let's talk about this idea, the idea of the safe job myth. That I think so many people who are right now with the economy is doing well, they have a job, they feel secure, they're feeling that very, that safety net. And you talked about it in your book about what your career advisor doesn't know or doesn't never told you. <laughs> and I think it's really good. I love having this conversation because after being an educator for so years with one of the safest career choices in the world, I realized it was never, yes. ever truly safe. Yes. And this is the safe job myth is at near the beginning of the book. And it's really about this rewiring for so if someone like you and me, you know, I'm not, I'm a very risk averse person. And it sounds like you are too. And there's a sense that for me, that entrepreneurship and doing your own thing was something for a rebel type who was like, would throw out all the rules at any opportunity. And that really wasn't me. And so I wanted to write a book that spoke to people like me who were, you know, creative in our own ways and, you know, sparky people, but we weren't the type who'd be like, guess what? Screw the system. I'm out. That wasn't the vibe. And so I spent a long time on the beginning of the book, not making the assumption that if you pick up a book with this title, you're already bought in and you just want a how to, but picking up, making the assumption you pick up a book with this title and half of you is in. And so all of the beginning of the book is basically me speaking to all the fears, all the things that you've been told. I mean, it's the reason the book's done well. Like it's just that, that sense of meeting you where you're at. And the safe job myth, it's funny you pick that out because it gets picked out all the time. And it's a really simple idea that you know, we grow up with this idea that a job is safe, whereas being your own boss is not. But when you peel it back a little bit, the thing I say in the book is, number one, there isn't such a thing as a job for life anymore in most industries. And even if there is, you don't know what's going to happen. We've all seen what happens when an economy crashes. But number two, you're only as safe as your notice period. So if your notice period is three months, you have three months of security and you have one client and that client is your employer. And so what do you, with that information, you're moving from something where you have a very loyal client and three months of security. Now that doesn't mean that you need to leave that. It just, it's, I'm trying in the book, I'm not making, I'm not trying to make an argument for being your own boss as the best way. I'm trying to make an argument to make it equal in people's eyes to say, you know, if I want to do something different, let's take away some of the myths. So I think that's the big, that's one of the huge ones. It, it definitely was for me. Right. It didn't really get played out until 2008 where people it, like we called our bluff, like, see, we weren't bluffing. This is, <laughs> this is definitely true. And it, it affected yeah. everyone, people with big industry jobs who thought they were untouchable, you know, at the very top of the food chain in some regards. And then those even for teachers, I remember they're saying, we, you still have your job, but you won't get a raise. And people thought, well, the safety net is I just will stay here because at least I have a job when others don't. And, you know, what, you gave some examples. And I, I remember, I think it, it was, a, it resonated with me because it was a school teacher named Connie, I think. And she, Connie, yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. she, you know, in these roles of service, I think like teacher, nurse, and all these places that you already feel like you're doing the good work, I guess, <laughs> you can feel guilty for wanting more or wanting something different. And thinking that you deserve it. It, it. And this is where the mindset part of your book really struck me. And what you mentioned before 
is that a lot of this is a mindset driven. It's not, if you had just had the knowledge and skills, you would do fine, but reprogramming ourselves. And I love the way you discuss Connie, maybe I'll let you tell a story better, but how this, the shift in the belief of you couldn't do something you love and still contribute in a way that brings lots of value back to you. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really beautiful, yeah. the way you talk about the 30 footprint studio and how she kind of built that around this principles that really, to me, was a mind shift that I saw before me as I was reading her story. I love that. Thank you. It's funny because that's one thing when I was writing the book, I was very aware of, even in the second edition, that it's so important to have a story that will resonate with different types of readers. And so I was pulling in stories of different people with different personalities, people doing different things, people with different commitments. And you know, everyone has a different favorite story. And sometimes they surprise me. Sometimes it's a tiny line. Sometimes it's you know some story that I didn't think was like the best one. Or sometimes it's you know someone amazing like Connie. But you know, I think that's why it's so important to storytell, even if you're doing a, a more of a business or a personal development book. Right. So let's talk about this. Let's, when you get to writing, because a lot of people maybe listening have started writing a book, maybe they've written a book and they're thinking of their next book in particular for helping create a second edition. Obviously, you have a lot of content that's still worthy or still applicable. And then you think, okay, now what's the new stuff? How do you decide and how do you break apart the book and rearrange it so now you're able to tell the story differently without maybe driving yourself a bit mad to wanting to scrap it all and start over? Well, actually, I did drive myself a bit mad. So (laughs) I'll just talk you through that little process. So just to give context here, the first edition took probably 10, 11 months to write. So I got a book deal, did it, and it was nine months plus we got an extra two. So yeah, about 10, say 10 months to write. The second edition took me three months to fix it. Mm. So that's a huge, huge chunk. It was a rewrite. It was more an expanded edition. So what I did was I ended up writing so much, we had double the word count of the original. That wasn't necessary as it turned out. (laughs) Because what I'd done, the first, I mean, I think I made a mistake. I knew where I was, but I wanted to keep the energy and the value of the original book that people, it had changed people's lives. You know, it had started so many different businesses. And I was like, just because I am in a different place now doesn't mean I get to break that. And so the originally, there was so much I wanted to change. I wanted to change, completely change the intro. I wanted to change pretty much every story. And what really helped was I ended up working, just someone who helped me out a lot was one of my coaches and someone who in free range humans, we have a couple of coaches who coach my clients. And one of those people, she'd actually changed her life because of the first edition. And she's been through the free range process and now she coaches people. So I was like, she was perfect. So she was on the phone with me a lot and she's a really organized person. So she kept her first edition with post-it notes and with all the notes she'd made in a notebook. So whenever I said, you know what, I really think I'm going to lose this bit. She'd go through and she'd say, oh my gosh, you can't lose that bit. Here's what I said, It the impact it was. The safe job myth was actually one of those things. I completely, I was like, is there a point in keeping it? She goes, it was so important. So I actually, firstly, the outside view was huge. Hmm. Um, I got a lot of feedback from people I work closely with, but ultimately it was something I should have done right at the start, which was, which I think is correct for a first or second. And that was simply to say, what is the thing that I want people to get from this book? What's the feeling? What's the the insight? And the insight and the thing I wanted to come across as a theme was the sense that you, know, you as you are. So all the other things that were already in there about you know, business and safe job, they were all fine. But I was like, if anything new comes in, it has to be about that. 
And I can only take out stories that I think missed the point or are completely out of date. So that meant that even though we gathered another hundred stories, I kid you not, from my readers, we ended up only inserting less than a dozen new stories. We ended up, I wrote six new chapters, we ended up putting three in and the edits were a lot lighter. So I think it was this sense of, and I think, you know, even a first edition needs this, what's that, what is the one theme? What's the one message? And what, what do people who actually use this book, what do they, where do they resonate the most? I think that was how it ended up coming together in the way it did. Right. So as the book re- maybe shifted and you found the place of resonance for your readers, how has it shifted you and your ability to promote this book? Because obviously the first book you were not resonating with as, as much as you were obviously when you first wrote it. And, you know, book launch, most authors think that writing the book's hard. I say it is. Editing is even harder, but marketing, it's the hardest part of it all <laughs> because you have to stay true to your message and beyond and continually talk about this book in, in multiple venues on and on. Because if you're not willing to talk about it, can't expect others to be willing to talk about it either. So where was the biggest challenge for you? Well, I could say marketing is my favorite part. Like oh, I literally write books so I can market it. So <laughs> my, my publisher loves this about me. I'm just like, can we just finish this book? Because I want to market a great product. So that's why I'm like obsessing about I had like two or three editors working with me. So we really got a good product. And I was like, right, when can I market? When can I market? So what I did, and you'll know this because I think I reached out to you at the time. I knew that the world was a little different now from when I did the first edition. And I thought, hmm, okay, what is going to work that maybe wasn't around before? And the first thing that came up was podcasts. So I set myself a thing where I was going to go and find 50 podcasts to be on, which is a really high number. Also knowing being friends with podcasters, I know that There are lead times that we need to be very mindful of. And so I started that several months before the book release date. So I started with people who I knew, people who I knew this would be right for. I crafted very, I didn't send, I didn't get a VA to do this and I didn't send out blanket emails. I contacted people through intros or personally only. And so by the, when the book came out, and I made sure I split it with US and UK because those are our two big bases. By the time the book was released, we already had podcasts going out. I, they were releasing it like that week. So that was the first big thing that I did. So I was like, number one, get out there, start well before your dates because it's a whole new ball game when, when your book's actually out. The second thing was, I know that I have a really great following. And even though I was told, well, you know, a second edition, people don't rebuy the book. I was like, they absolutely will rebuy the book. And so I put, oh, I didn't have to do very much because we had a, my list is pretty on it. So I'd sent out, you know, some strong emails. We really went for the launch date. I explained the difference. It really resonated with people, the sort of tidbits I was sharing. And so I promoted a lot through my following. And then what was a surprise to me was people who'd read the first edition, so supporters of it. People like, I think you're friends with Dan Meredith. Is that right? I saw him on your Facebook friend list. Yeah. So Dan is someone who started his business through the first edition of the book, has a massive following. You know, I didn't ask him to promote the book, but I actually asked him to be a endorser. So to have his name, like you give some lines about the impact of this book or the impact of my work and whatever. Um, And so he did that. When the book came out, he was so happy to have been an endorser and so excited about the new edition that he send stuff out to his whole following. That's just one example. So I kind of did it in this very personal way that had like 
podcasts, my own list, other people who were supportive. And the fourth one, the reason I mentioned this the lowest is because it's the least impactful was press. So I got a bunch of press in the UK. I was on BBC World News. I was in the Telegraph. I was in flight magazines. I've just written an article for Business Insider, which is not out at time of speaking, but hopefully will be soon. In the U- That's in the US. And there's a few more US pieces of press. But I always say that press is wonderful for status and it's wonderful for getting you opportunities where you can sell the book. But with the exception of possibly the Business Insider article when it comes out, my book did not sell through press and almost no books sell through press. There's only specific circumstances when they do. And so, yeah, so it's a nice to have, but I think it's more of a status indicator and gets you more opportunities. But the rest is, is stuff anyone can, can really do. And you can start with you know, getting on two podcasts as a starting point. Yeah, that's great. I, I always encourage my authors, like, these are people listening exactly for what you're talking about in a very small niche. Instead of speaking to millions, you speak to the ones or two who really want to hear you. Sorry Absolutely about agree. The, uh, Absolutely. Yep. The, if you hear noise outside, it's because um, they decided they would do the weed eating right now during the interview, which is <laughs> brilliant and perfect as it should be. <laughs> so we'll carry on. I may edit this part out just so people won't, won't have to know about my lawn care service. But in your book, I love the way that the book breaks it down into different myths. Obviously, certain myths jump out to me. What are the myths that still apply so strongly, or maybe even new myths that you applied to this whole concept of being a free-range human that still still ring true to this day? I know the ones that struck me, I've already mentioned one. Another one is that, you know, to think differently about your resume or who you are, or your, I don't have decades of experience kind of myth. What are the ones that really still resonate with you strongly that you maybe dove into differently through this edition? Yeah, I think the first one you touched on, the idea of, you know, you you have an idea or you start something and then you start looking at everyone else's social media or their about pages and you're like, oh my gosh, they are so much more experienced than me. They have so much more status. They've been mentioned here. They've been mentioned there. You know, who am I to speak within this or who am I to offer my services or my products within this? I think that is there actually stronger than ever. Because we we have more opportunities as more people create platforms, which is great, the opportunities for comparison rise in proportion to that. And so I I actually went longer on that in this edition. And my friend Phil, the photographer who is profiled several times in the book, was such a wonderful example. Because if you, as I show in the book, if you look at his website and his presence now, it's pretty awesome. You know, for someone starting out as a photographer in their first year, they might say, gosh, well, he's got all this status. He's got this, he's got that. But, you know, when he started, he was actually fine. He was a teacher. They're not all teachers, but he was a teacher (laughs) (laughs) um, in, in California. And he was a guy who, you know, didn't have, you know, the sort of like savings or or family backing to go off to an expensive photography school. So he was a self-taught guy, you know, in a town that was, full of people who'd been to this really prestigious school. And he literally made his way by taking photos of any event he'd get hold of. Like he basically, I show in the book how he built up from this very unglamorous, no contact, no insider perspective, and how you don't see that when you look at someone's today story. So you know, you're comparing where you are to where someone else is today. You're not seeing the beginning. And the other thing I say is obviously even if someone is the similar stage to you, they're not writing their about page or their social media presence in order to make you feel better. They're writing it to impress potential clients. 
clients or customers. So I think I give this funny example in there of an events person and like someone who does events, how they might have this impressive bio, but they're not going to write something like, uh, I know, Lauren uh, organized her office events once or twice, you know, wine was served in plastic cups and it was all a little bit awkward. She's like, she's not going <laughs> right. to write that. She'll be like, has organized events for Deloitte, you know, like it's going to be, she's going to spin it. And so it's like, you don't get your validation for that. So that's one of the things. And I do think that's a myth. You know, if you're just that I'm not enough because I haven't, you know, got this shiny thing in the book, a big thing we talk about is projects is running what we call a free range project, just taking what you have and doing something that proves to yourself and to others you're actually doing it. So you're, you want to do events, go off and find something to organize. Can you get involved in your friend's wedding? Like what can you do? And that's what a huge part of the book is. It's a sense that you're, you're not just dreaming. You're not just planning at every point in it you're doing. And I think that is another myth that you have to have everything ready and perfect, which is absolutely, as you know, the opposite of how things really work. Completely. And you talk about how to spot your superpowers, which I think is another great part of this is I think some people don't see their brilliance or something they're really great at, maybe because their job doesn't equal their superpower. What's your advice about helping someone spot their own superpower the way you describe it in the book? Oh, that's such a, I love this topic. It's the best one. I'm, if I, if I literally just wrote an article about this. I think if you are struggling to, you know, if you know some things you're kind of good at, but it feels like there's not this one theme that stands out as, you know, your big superpower, one thing I encourage people to do. I do in the book is to look at your weaknesses. So if you're in an environment that where you're feeling like, oh, you know, I'm I'm kind of okay at stuff, I'm doing all right, but I'm not feeling like I'm alive, odds are that something about you that is actually your superpower is currently seen as a weakness. And there's a line in there where I say, weaknesses are just strengths in the wrong environment. And that. that to me is the that's the feel of the entire book, is this realization. I share my stories in there of how I was in one job where I was supposed to just be really good at details, which uh, I'm not. I was supposed to be really great at spreadsheets and you know, all keeping things ticking along. And I could do all that. You know, If you're a smart person, you can kind of put your mind to anything. But the thing that I really wanted to do was change things, like change how things worked. I wanted to, I was best when I was storytelling, giving presentations, but I genuinely didn't see those things as a good thing. I actually saw those tendencies as a weakness, kind of the fluffy side. And in the the team I was in, it was a fluffy thing. You know, those that tendency to storytell was a weakness. That tendency to overlook the details because you could see the whole picture. You know, I have to keep dragging my mind back. And so when I ended up leaving that job and going into a very different role, it turns out I got paid to do the exact things that I had had tried to be managed out of me in the previous jobs. You know, I was suddenly consulting for multinational companies who wanted to create change. I was doing presentations where I told stories. So many stories like this that I see when you you have this thing about you that's as a weakness. But the exercises we share in there are about getting you thinking about environments where that could be a strength. So whether it's I'm too introverted, whether it's I'm too social, I'm not focused, whatever it is, there's going to be, the game is to make sure you see it as a neutral trait to start with, and then start to look at where could this be a good thing. And it's real, honestly, it's a real game changer because if someone's stuck, I'm like, well, you do have something that's outstanding about you. Your current environment isn't supporting that. So we're going to have to get creative to see see where it lies. 
Right. I love that. And in that same chapter where you kind of discuss that, you there's a quote that really struck me. It was, easy doesn't mean lazy. It simply means you're doing <laughs> something completely in flow with who you are. And I thought that that's so beautiful because so many, and I, and I feel a little bit of guilt because I was in the education system, but this is really what some of the education system has done, which is make you feel bad for your strengths because they aren't the thing that earns a grade or earns recognition in a school setting. So that's why so many entrepreneurs tend to be those rebel rousers who pushed out or have special gifts, which my mind, which I used to hide was dyslexia. I'm dyslexic. So I'm the, I'm a book coach who became, you know, a flunked freshman English at UCLA, couldn't read at third grade and was probably the least likely person to be, to be teaching university and then become a book coach. Not because I'm good at grammar and English, because I'm better at finding story and meaning behind someone's message. But in school, it wasn't a superpower. It was actually quite useless because you can't just interrupt a teacher to tell her what you're thinking. It's sort of, no, 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 you don't just do that. You have to sit quietly. I'm like, but I have ideas. Well, then put in the paper. I'm like, well, my ideas don't come out that way. Oh, be quiet. Okay. So I really, that really resonated with me. And I really, I I mean, even not having read your book when I started my business can see how this can really help people who are out there wondering, there's nothing special about me. And, And absolutely the contrary is true, I would say. Yeah, perfect. I I love that story. And it's, and that's the funny thing. I think it's very easy to think, okay, well, I found a potential superpower, but it's not enough. It's not big enough, you know, or it's not serious enough. And I think the game really is to, instead of comparing ourselves to someone who's different, which would be really easy for you to do, right, in what you're doing, is to say, what is it that I can bring? that maybe is being missed right now. You know, if someone, if there's already a field out there doing something, whether it's small or, or big, there's always room for a different voice, for something else within it. And I think it's, it's instead of saying you know, there is one way to be in this industry, I think that's one of the most dangerous myths because, you know, you look at leaders, people who are thriving and you think, well, they only made it because they fit in. And as I say in my TED talk, as I say in the book, that's absolutely the opposite. The odds are that when there was probably a point and almost always in what they were doing, where they were different to the norm. You know, I give the example, and not in the book, but I often personally give the example of someone like Marie Forleo, who um, anyone in online business would know who she is, you know, created a huge movement, has a New York Times bestseller. But when she really started on this part of her journey, she was really different to everyone else. She, who was out there at the time in the States, you know, she was the ex-dancer who was you know, sparky, creative in a world. And I remember that time that was full of very serious minded, slightly sleazy guys in conference rooms. And she, you know, she'd go to conferences and people would tell her, oh, is your husband paying for you to be here? Like it was a different world. Now she could have said, as a lot of women did at the time, I am going to fit this mold. I'm going to pretend to be you know, less feminine, less playful, more whatever. And instead, she went in a very, very different direction. And now she's the biggest player. And it's those moments we don't see when we see the established person. And I think it's so important to, to keep them in mind. You know, it's your difference that ends up being your strength. Right. And I, I, I think that that comes from that playful nature that you discuss in your book. It's the element of playing with this idea, dancing around it for a while to see where your value kind of rises to the top, sort of like the cream. Mm. And I think so many of us, because of conditioning, think that the only path there ever will be is getting a job. And so you play the game early on and you get conditioned and it worked for your parents, supposedly. And they, you know, went, you know, did this thing and they 
your peers did this thing where you work hard, get good grades, get into good university so you can get a good job and play the rules there so you can get a promotion and play the rules there so you can become partner. And it all sort of seems to fit in with that narrative. But the moment you step out, if you, this is why I believe your book is so powerful. It's the mindset about you have to really be prepared, not just with the knowledge, with the mindset of even when you test out mm-hmm. ideas or the, the ideas when you talk about this whole myth of originality, which I love as well. Like I could go on and on about their book. It just helps so many people get grounded in truths that isn't being told by the society or by by the status quo. And I, I really appreciate the way in which you walk us through that in your book. Very simple, very concrete and with lots of examples. But for yourself, what were the places where you felt the most resistance? And even, even still now, when you get in that playful space to try a little bit something new, because of course we grow in our <laughs> careers, but we also have things we have to let go of. Where is that playful space for you? Ooh, I think I very much identify as that person who, you know, overachiever, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it really well. And that unfortunately stifles creativity. You know, one of the biggest barriers to creativity is existing success. If you have success, you don't want to break it and therefore you can be stuck. And the other barrier to creativity is perfectionism. And I have had both of those at different times, sometimes together. So, right. So I really experienced this idea of wanting to get everything right. And for me, the thing that brings me back a lot is just evidence. Over time, you know, I've seen the patterns. I've seen it with me. I've seen it with my colleagues and my clients over the years that it's never the thing you think is going to be the big thing that is the big thing. (laughs) So free range humans, I don't know if I'm sure I mentioned this in the book, free range humans was just a blog project on the side of my serious business. Now, of course, the serious business never like took off nearly as much as free range humans, the silly name did, because if I'd been trying to come up with a clever name that was going to be taken seriously and end up being profiled in press across the world, I can tell you, I would not have said free range humans at the time. It wasn't in line with anything. And so I've seen this again and again, you know, my TED talk, which has had, I mean, it's creeping up to half a million views now. And when I did that, I thought maybe this will be the thing that breaks me. Maybe finally people will think I'm too weird. I'm too different. I don't fit in. It's literally a talk about how about not fitting in. And I, I went on stage thinking, well, I know my existing following will probably be pretty cool with it, but wow, this is going to like mess me up. Of course, absolute opposite happened. It's those moments of going, remember, like remember it's the thing that you don't expect. And I, I so I set myself challenges, personal challenges, and I don't always talk about them publicly. I did, the other year, a few, actually quite a few years ago now, I was feeling a little bit stuck creatively after, you know, I'd been, the book had been out for years and I was just like, I was kind of scared of breaking what I already had. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, I can't change things, can't do things. So I, I set myself, I played this game. I often play games with myself. And I said, okay, the game is that you imagine that the internet kind of doesn't exist anymore. So you can't really <laughs> use the internet. So number one, your brain isn't working as well. Like you're, you can't use, and which can happen, right? Like if you go through a period of depression, which I have been through, you know, anything happens that you're, you can't rely on, you can't consult people. So you can't use your knowledge and you can't use the internet, which are the two things I've always done. And you have to start again with no investment. What is right. something you could do with, you can't use anything you have ever done in your past and you can't use the internet. And I was like, oh my God, they're my two crutches. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, so I feel use something any human can access with no knowledge. And so I was like, okay, so I'd been making, this is such a silly example, but I'd been making these body scrubs for mm-hmm. myself, like from 
while I was in Bali, I was based in Bali for a while. So I was using coffee grounds and coconut oil and these love, I've been getting the recipe right. And I got back to London and I thought, okay, well, I guess what if I made coffee scrubs from leftover coffee from my local cafes? So it's free and ingredients you can find in your kitchen, which is what I did. And so I purchased a bunch of jars. I got like a stamp made up with this brand name, these little uh, really cute tags, like brown paper tags, really like rustic, but, but neat. I got a stall at a market that this co-working space that I wasn't a member of, but still got a stall at, was having every, I think every month on a weekend. And I got some friends, I messaged some friends and said, I'm doing this. And I set up a store and I suddenly secretly sold body scrubs for a month. <laughs> and I can tell you as well, it was the most fun. Firstly, I hate making body scrubs as it turns out. I, I, every time I do a making project, I remember that I don't actually like making like in big batches. And I'm like, oh my God, here we go again. But so I was like, okay, so making isn't the thing, but oh my gosh, it sold out. It was the only store to sell out. Because you know, I was price testing live. I was using all my marketing knowledge. I was like, okay, so we're going to price test the three sizes, different price points to see how I can like do price comparison in favor. How can we do bundling? How can we do product testing with people? And it was wonderful. And I came back from that. I mean, I think I would, you know, people still email me to this day and say, do you still sell body scrub? And I'm like, I really don't sell body scrub. <laughs> but I could have. What was joyful for me in that was number one. I got to, I love performing and I felt that selling behind, you know, a wondrous product that made people smile that they could try felt like being, it was a slight performance, but in a lovely way. And I was connecting and meeting people. So I loved that. And, and the other thing was I could have built that into a business. You know, I had friends who had, you know, saying, you know, I have this connection here, this connection there. What if we repackaged it? We could make this into a thing. And I was like, I could see exactly how it could become a real business and get stocked in stores. That wasn't a direction I wanted to go at the time, but those are the ways, you know, and that's a fun project. Like, why not do that? Why not take, and I know obviously we all have different amounts of time available, but that is a sort of project that I've prioritized when I felt stuck and you come back with so many wonderful insights. Right. That is incredible. And I think that's really insightful for people thinking, oh, well, yeah, it's easy for them because they have a business or they have a presence or they have a book. And even people who've written books that didn't have the traction, because that happens quite often, actually. You know, you write a book and it's not the book that's going to leap you into the stratosphere. But what it does is gives you an opportunity to do the thinking behind it. It's That's the thing I wish that I did better job as a teacher was getting kids to show me their thinking. Show me what you're thinking here. Mm -hmm. Because the thinking is, the, the is, as you mentioned, often is the mindset. So like if we can help each other think differently, there's never going to ever be a time when we don't have prosperity, because there's always going to be a need, even in good times or poor times, meaning that we don't have a lot of money, we still have needs. So I love this idea of creativity. You're a very creative person because creativity needs constraints. Most people think creativity needs open-ended, long, you know, much time, as much space, as much resources as possible. <laughs> and that really actually messes up creativity because you get stuck when you have constraints like time or, you know, paper or materials, whatever. That's when your brain starts to solve the problem. And that's creativity is a, it's a curiosity problem if you're struggling with creativity. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, you can't, you don't just play a game with no rules. Like that would be, it wouldn't work. Like you set rules. Like I always say, I love that you say that. I say that exactly what you say a lot. And that the example always comes to mind of the haiku 
which is the most meaningful, evocative form of poetry because it is the most constrained form. You don't have pages to work with. You have a lot of rules. So, you know, when you the time in the partner I work with on a lot of my projects for a product launch and the game was, how do we have the most successful launch ever in terms of numbers and income while also experiencing the most ease, ease support? And so that game to me was a creative game, but it was also an insane game because I did not think that was possible. I really had this, this ingrained belief that growth meant pain, that growth meant burnout. That had been a lot of, you know, whenever I went through a sharp period of growth, there wouldn't be this sense of happiness around it. There'd be adrenalization and then I'd get sick. Like that was my experience. And so we set this game and then we had to solve the problem, right? It's not like you just go, oh my gosh, I want to feel more ease in my life. And you, you say it every day. No, you actually have to solve that problem. How do you bring in more people? How do you up-level your marketing so that you can charge this? Like you then have to get creative. And I think it's the same for marketing, for writing, for everything we're doing. You set the game rather than saying who is setting. The default will set it for you otherwise. Right. And I I think I I take my nods from children. Uh, When I studied children's folklore, what was really amazing was kids actually love rules. They're just different than adults. Adults create rules to stop behaviors. Don't come late, come prepared, sit down, don't talk, raise your hand. That's all to keep control. But kids, they create rules on the playground so that play can continue. So if there's 10 people that show up for a game of four square and there's only four spots, then we make a line here and we rotate and the rules make it so that everyone can play or freeze tag where there's too many people for us to possibly do, to win this game. So if we add an element to it, more people can play. And I think if life is treated this way, where you use the rules of play the way children do, then you continually stay in play. And I think rules are really useful for this notion of creativity and play. And I, I encourage my writers to think of it this way so that they don't see the constriction of time or word counts as, as a troubling thing. They see them as an inspiration to keep moving forward. You know, I'm going to quote you on this. Uh, that line right there that children use rules to enable play, to, to continue play rather than to you know, restrict it. That is a game changer. You know, the idea of, you know, rules is expansive, not thank you. I really, I love that. Yeah, no, I really, it's a gift from them. It took me a while to understand it because why were they so interested in rules on the playground? But when you get in the classroom, you got rules. They're like, oh my gosh, it's because they weren't encouraging them to do the thing they wanted to do. School is already not interesting for most kids. So I was like, what if we just created rules where you made it more fun, which is homework's optional write your papers as long, as short as you want. Like, why? Because I want them to keep playing the game, not because I want to make them follow my rules. So if homework becomes optional, if turning in length of a paper, I said, everyone turn in paper, whether it's, you know, half a paragraph or 20 pages, there's no rule. Then they start to say, well, then I'll play. If I, if it doesn't matter how long it is, let's see, I'll turn in a one sentence paper and see if I get graded the same. And that was really my engagement tool for play. And once they got in those rules, it was amazing the amount of work they did by just changing the way rules work. Love that. Yeah. Well, it's been lovely. I'm really excited. I, if you if you haven't already, <laughs> could tell how excited I am about, about this wonderful book, Be a Free Range Human. Please go and get it. We'll list it up in it, the show notes, as well as the TED Talk that you referenced. I've been so great, grateful to have you here and for sharing the message uh, to, to let people see what's possible for their life mm-hmm. outside of the nine to five. Thank you so Thank much you for being so here, guys. Much. This has been great. Thank you. 
Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story, how they got there, and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at coachazul.com.